1: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love It podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at SamanthaSherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, SamanthaSherry.com.
0: Christy Shriver. We're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week is our poetry supplement uh, that we like to do between books. Next week, we're going to begin our discussion of Arthur Miller and his allegorical work, The Crucible. Uh, but before we leave the Renaissance, we felt we needed to take at least one week to discuss the man who's basically credited for starting the Renaissance, which is a big deal, uh, at least in part, the humanist part of it, Francisco Petrarca, or as we like to say in English, Petrarch. <laughs>
0: it's easier.
1: It is. Uh, Christy, this is one man that is so differently studied in the field of history versus your field or the study of literature. Uh, it's a testimony to his incredible influence, no doubt.
0: So true, although everything intersects in the Renaissance. They were all Renaissance men, of course. (laughs) But I neglected to point out, and it's something I probably should have and is definitely worth mentioning, that Machiavelli ended the prince quoting Petrarch's famous poem, Canzoni 128, a beautiful poem where Petrarch calls Italy to unity.
1: And here are some of those lines. Virtue against fury shall take up arms and the fight be short, for ancient valor is not dead in Italian hearts. Uh, You know, it's somewhat of a strange concept in the 1300s, which is when uh, Petrarch lived 200 years before Machiavelli. Uh, It may be even strange for the 1500s and in Machiavelli's day, but a dream Machiavelli shared with Petrarch for their homeland as they viewed it, uh, not just as Tuscany, but as... Italy, a nation.
0: Yes, and there is so much strangeness involving Francesco Petrarch. I really don't know where to start. First of all, 700 years, that is a long time, especially for us in the Americas. We don't even trace our history very well back that far. We kind of get lost uh, that far back. my colleague and dear friend Bill Bivens teaches AP European History, and he speaks of Petrarch, and he talks about the important influence on him humanistic thought. And we talked about that a little bit when we were beginning the intro with Machiavelli. But this idea that the Italians were going to revive the works of the Greeks and the Latins, Petrarch did that. Petrarch firmly believed that believing in Jesus Christ was not at odds with ancient classical pagan thought, and through his work, he tried to make this important connection between the two ways of looking at the world, because for the most part, during the age before him... Seeing the world through religious terms was completely at odds with looking at that way and actually was considered heretical. People thought that if you were a Christian, you couldn't accept anything secular and the ideas of the ancient thinkers were bad because they're not Christian. And even today, religion and secular thought often kind of come across as at odds against each other. Uh, But back then, the idea that you can merge those two things was a very crazy proposition but in European history class, because I asked Mr. Bivens, uh, what would you be reading? And he would say they study Petrarch's ascent up Mount Vento. Uh, a lot of teachers even read the famous letter that was that Petrarch wrote when he came back down, supposedly to his confessor priest that he used to confess to, documenting the climb and what happened when he got up there and he pulled out a book by St. Augustine and read these most important words after he saw the beautiful view and he claimed the only reason he went up there was to see the view.
1: Well, Christy, explain why do you say supposedly?
0: Good question. And the word supposedly looms over everything, Petrarch. Petrarch addressed the letter uh, to his confessor like it was some sort of private meditation of sorts about his trip up the mountain, but then he circulated the letter all over the place, and it was a very public piece of writing, so much so that we read it to this day. So there you go. The reason for doing that is something I want to talk about, but as far as climbing Mount Vento goes, Pichard's climb up the mountain is extremely famous, Petrarch is even considered to be the informal patron saint of mountaineering.
1: Who knew? Um, I I know it's a tangent, but for those of us who've never been to southern France, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that Mount Ventoux is a famous mountain in the south of France uh, that we know better today because uh, part of the Tour de France, you know, the the enormous bike ride goes through there. Uh, Geographically, it kind of stands out by itself, so you can see it from all around. Uh, It's also unique because the peak is covered in limestone, making it look like it's covered in snow all year, even though it's not. Um, It's considered one of the most grueling parts of the race and the reason why I refuse to enter.
0: (laughs) I'm sure that's it.
1: Today, of course, most people drive to the top, as I would. And regardless, uh, Petrarch's climb to the top is the first of thousands of pilgrimages up this famous mountain with the purpose of going up there just to see the view.
0: Well, I'm sure that's how he intended it. Petrarch is considered to be, by the way, the first tourist, not necessarily because he climbed Mount Ventoux, but because he's the first person to document traveling solely for pleasure. So there you go. There's a trend that caught on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: <laughs> but most of his time really was spent doing a lot of scholarly work, primarily in Latin. Much of it, nobody but scholars ever reads anymore. But even though we don't read his original works, his ideas have disseminated through a lot of other writers after him. Example Machiavelli, Hmm, but many, many, many many others. Connection. Another good example of how some of his ideas just kind of have taken off, even that phrase, the Dark Ages. He coined that and people use it all the time when they're talking about the middle ages.
1: So let's go back. He's the father of tourism. <laughs> yes. What else did he start?
0: Mountaineering.
1: Mountaineering. <laughs> created the, the sonnet. Uh, and,
0: we're, we're moving on. He's
1: got a lot going on. So, uh, it's getting back to the dark ages. It's really a condescending term. I mean, uh, you know, of course, it, it doesn't offend the people of the Middle Ages because they're obviously dead. <laughs> but Middle Age scholars will tell you it was definitely not a dark period at all. I mean, uh, lots of great things were going on. There's great thinking, great art, etc. But uh, P. Chork thought that because it was an age right before his... Uh, The term itself is a great illustration of this idea that I hammer down all the time, and that is that we all must guard ourselves against the arrogance of the present. Uh, It's not just something we do only in the 21st century. Everyone of every era always thinks their understanding or their view of the world is always the most enlightened, the most progressive, and it's the final say in all things, you know, moral and scientific. And um, we like to think of ourselves as superior to our immediate predecessors. And uh, we we still use the technique of renaming things as a means to assert this kind of thinking. And once again, I like to call this the arrogance of the present. That's so something previous historians are very aware of.
0: is always dark.
1: <laughs> well, and as Cicero said, you know, people who won't Ooh. study history will always remain a child. Well, this isn't, you know, another, yeah. along those lines. Well,
0: I will say, Petrarch saw himself, if not anything, but enlightened and progressive. And, and he was. There's no doubt about that. He has made a name for himself, not just in history or philosophy, and not just mountaineering and touring, (laughs) like we talked about. But you you refer to this, I think, at least for me, his most lasting living legacy is in the form of the tiny little literary convention that we call the sonnet, which is a tad ironic. And I'm not sure that he would like it, that that's the thing that most people know about him. He wrote a long I consider meandering epic poem in Latin called Africa and dedicated to Robert of Naples. And I don't know from what I've read, he was probably a little bit more proud of that piece. It certainly took him a lot more work, but um, for most of us, it's unreadable. But we can get into the sonnets. The sonnets are simpler; they're accessible. The word itself, the word sonnet really comes from the Italian, well, a pre-de- like Italian-like um, form of what they spoke at that time, and it meant little song. It's a small 14-line exercise, a literary game in some ways, if you want to look at it that way, where language meets math. Honestly, if you've ever been subjected to any kind of English literature class, you probably met the sonnets. (laughs) And lots of us teachers uh, make you write sonnets, and that can be a little tough. Uh, Most students will prefer to read sonnets over other forms of poetry for no other reason than, you know, they are only 14 lines, so you get through it if you're not a crazy poetry person. But Gary, do you remember reading sonnets in school? Did you write one perchance? <laughs> well,
1: first of all, if I read any sonnets in school, i blocked them from my oh. mind. Currently. And uh, I, have, I didn't have any Shakespearean facility with words, so I did not write love sonnets. But I just was a goofy guy.
0: Well, the sonnet is a form that's unfortunate. There's still time, really, uh, of kind of a literary Sudoku, if you want to think of it that way although that's not a scientific or scholarly description. No,
1: but it's it's contemporary. <laughs>
0: yeah, Petrarch picked up the form back from his home country in Tuscany, maybe from even a guy from Arezzo, his hometown, named Friar Grittani. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not as sure about these Italian names. Although uh, the sonnet itself, if you want to really dig into the weeds, the original creator, people say, is a guy named Giacomo Lentini from Sicily. But everyone, when they think of sonnets and the origin of sonnets, don't think of Guitani, they don't think of Lentini, they think Petrarch. Because Petrarch made them famous. He blasted out hundreds of these things in praise of a woman named Laura. And that is what strikes me as strange about him. Because all this love poetry, and no one knows anything about Laura, we're not even entirely sure she existed.
1: Hmm. So you're saying the object of his love in hundreds of poems, the muse that gave birth to the poetic form of expressing true love for the last 700 years was potentially made up? (laughs)
0: That's what I'm saying. It's a mystery. He claims that he loved this mysterious woman named Laura until she died, which sadly was of a pandemic, by the way, the Black Plague.
1: Oh, my. But
0: according to Petrarch, she never loved him back. It was the ultimate expression of unrequited love of a lifetime. But I'll be honest, the identity of Laura is just one of the many mysteries about this man who documented his life. I'll tell you, he has documented his life better than I'm documenting the life of my children with the use of cameras and cell phones. (laughs) This guy named Ernest Wilkins in his book, Life of Petrarch, went this far. He said that, quote, we know far more about his experiences in life than about the experiences of any human being who had lived before his time. Wow. Yeah. Except although that's true in a sense because he did document everything constantly, we might not know him at all. Because mm, ironic. I know. Petrarch's story is worth revisiting in our modern world, not just because he had an important influence on modern thought and he did all that touring and the humanistic stuff that he's famous for, but there's even a more modern reason. So I want to take a detour to explain what I mean. Uh, in 2017, the College Board asked a half a million high school juniors from all over the United States and international schools all over the world to to consider a quote from the book Empire of Illusions by Chris Hedges. They were given 40 minutes to write this essay, uh, and they were going to get college credit depending on how well they wrote. This This is one of three essays that they had to write. But anyway, Chris Hedges, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and Presbyterian minister, he's an extremely accomplished lecturer. You can check out his great speeches on YouTube if you're wanting to do that. But he says this in the book, and this is what the kids were asked to write about. Here's Hedges' quote. The most essential skill in political theater and a consumer culture is artifice. Political leaders who use the tools of mass propaganda to create a sense of faux intimacy with citizens no longer need to be competent, sincere, or honest. They need only to appear to have these qualities. Most of all, they need a story, a personal narrative. The reality of the narrative is irrelevant. It can be completely at odds with the facts. The consistency and emotional appeal of the story are paramount. Those who are best at deception succeed. Those who have not mastered the art of entertainment, who fail to create a narrative or do not have one fashioned for them by their handlers, are ignored. They become unreal. An image-based culture communicates through narratives, pictures, and pseudo-drama. Before Chris Hedges introduced this term to me, I had never heard of the word artifice in my life. Although it's a concept I think Machiavelli would totally agree with. But anyway, I bring up Hedges because Petrarch, from my vantage point, is one of the first people to masterfully use artifice, this idea of creating the personal narrative, not only to become one of the most celebrated and influential men of his time. This guy was so celebrated, by the way. He was asked to be poet laureate of both France and Rome. That's a big deal. Uh, But his artifice has carried him 700 years into history into Gloria, to use a Max, Machiavelli's term. He crafted carefully a narrative about his own life that, in a lot of ways, was not his life. Hmm. It was based on his life, but he revised his letters over and over again so that our memory of him is a better version than, than the reality of him. We, you can say it this way. He put an Instagram filter on his life before Instagram, and just like 16-year-old Charlie D'Amelio with her 100 million-plus impressive subscribers, he did it with no handlers, no corporate promoters, or even professional image makers, like she did.
1: <laughs> True. Uh, Petrarch did it without TikTok.
0: <laughs> True, but he would have used it if he had had it.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Because it, it took him longer. He crafted his personal narrative and revised it to make sure that it survived for posterity. But if you look into it, you'll see that much of what he said about himself was made up or embellished. I mean, when it comes to celebrity, he makes Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton look like amateur artifice makers. Honestly, we can't guarantee there'll be podcasts about them in 700 years. But he had the extreme amount of ego and he had the ambition and those two things drove him to craft this self-portrait. So 700 years later, we have to wonder, why bother? Why do it? Is there something to be gained, by the way, by giving attention to this guy from 700 years ago? So I've had thoughts about that this week, and I've had questions, and I've wondered about this mystifying woman
1: he called
0: Laura. Laura. <laughs>
1: Yes, I I think her name is definitely worth repeating many times. Laura. Laura.
0: (laughs) Well, Gary, let's get back to the story that I've told you might be made up, but it might not be made up. So let's see where Laura came from. Drop us into Petrarch's 14th century world and let's build our case that Petrarch is the original influencer.
1: Okay, um, well, it, it starts on dramatically, and of course, uh, in Florence. His father was a lawyer but was exiled. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yes. They moved to a town called Arezzo, not too far down the road, still in Tuscany, uh, and as you like to recall, still in wine country.
0: Well, I also want to interject Arezzo is one of my very famous, favorite shoe brands. They make great leather shoes, just saying. <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, well, of course, and not to take away from you know the Brazilian shoe company because nothing can detract from outstanding leather fashion oh nothing uh, but I did want to say that Dante, the guy who wrote dante 's Inferno, also is one of those who can claim being exiled from Florence. They exiled a lot of people from Florence anyway. Uh, Francesco was born on july twentieth thirteen o four his parents, uh, not too long after, moved to Avignon, France. Uh, now they didn't just move to France for the the wine and the cheese, although well, that's been a draw for millions since then. But uh, there's a specific specific reason people were moving to Avignon at this time. The papal state had been exiled out of Rome, if you can believe it, and the pope was taking residence and leading the church from Avignon. Petrarch's father was um, a lawyer and needed work, so he headed there to try to get a job. Avignon at the time was really too small for the number of people that were trying to move there, so the family really lived in a place about fifteen miles away called Carpentras. <laughs> That's my best pronunciation I of it. Know. But it's in the general area. Now, the reason why we even bother with knowing all that is it twofold. First of all, uh, it is in Avignon that Petrarch is going to fall in love with Laura, Laura. whoever she may be. <laughs> uh, and it is with Laura that we will end our discussion today. But secondly, um, it's here Petrarch found his first love, and one he would pursue well beyond Laura's lifetime, his love of Latin. Probably a little little less attractive than Lauren. I know,
0: but more long-living, apparently. (laughs)
1: Yes. Well, Petrarch wanted and would eventually spend his entire life devoted to studying, transcribing, and hunting down manuscripts in Latin, uh, thinking about and reviving interest in the classics that were written in Latin. He was especially enamored with Virgil. Petrarch, uh, because his father insisted, went to law school in the town of Montpelier, which also was in southern France, but he didn't stay there. Uh, Not too long after that, he transferred to a school in Bologna, which is in Italy, but he didn't stay there either very long. In reality, Petrarch never stayed anywhere for too long. (laughs) Uh, But in the case of law school, uh, as soon as his father died in 1326, his career in law immediately went away and vanished. He famously said, and I quote, I couldn't face making a merchandise of my mind.
0: Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, well, let me take over him here because this is the moment, that sacred moment, the moment that has changed the lives of lovers for 700 years, the moment where life and art meet to immortalize the sonnet, to immortalize unrequited love. It's the moment that will leave Olympic laurel leaves on the heads of students forevermore following in Petrarch's footstep's drum oh roll. Am I making it big enough? Yes. The date that will not live in infamy, but in sacred nobility, April 6, thirteen. 27. It is on this date that the flames of love are ignited. Let me quote Petrarch here, because he recalls this moment years later, and he says this, As a young man, I was afflicted by a single love that was both fiery and pure. It would have lasted longer had it not been extinguished when the flames had already begun to burn low by a death that was bitter, but a lesson to me.
1: Well, I, I do not understand his love of unrequited love. So, But let's be clear. He's claiming that he fell in love with a woman on April 6, 1327, and stayed madly in love with her until she died.
0: Yep, that's the claim. Right. Let me further quote him. Laura, so renowned for her own virtues and so much celebrated in my poetry, was first manifested to my eyes when I was a young man in the church of St. Clair in Avignon at prime on 6 April 1327. In the same city, this world was deprived of her radiance at that same first hour, 6 April 1348. I happened at the time to be in Verona, unaware of my sorrowful fate. So there she goes. She was born and died on the same day. Hmm, how
1: interesting and (laughs) convenient.
0: Petrarch is claiming to have been in love with her for 21 years. Laura is the inspiration for 366 love poems. 317 of those were sonnets. These sonnets, as we are going to understand will define love poetry, maybe for 700 years. They discuss pure love, idealized love, unrequited love. And some would argue, it's almost really uncontested that Petrarch's lyric poetry codified the Italian language, which is a great accomplishment. But they're all centered around this woman, who, by the way, is not the mother of his children, although he does have children, and they do have a mother who I can't find anywhere who she is. (laughs) Can't find
1: Mrs. Pichar. No,
0: she's nothing, which is, uh, that's another tangent. The beauty of the lyrics, though, in these sonnets, no one is going to contest those. And sometimes in English, we really can't understand the beauty of the sonnets. We can't even hear them because the problem is all of his work was written in Italian. So when you translate Obviously, a lyric poem from another language, you're going to lose all the beauty of the sounds and of the language. The rhymes are not going to be right, they're messed up. The euphony of the beats and everything, the alliteration, none of that is going to work when you translate it from language to language. But here's my point. There's absolutely no question that Petrarch wrote over 300 of Italy's most beautiful poems to a woman named Laura. But it's strange we don't know for sure if Laura is actually a human or if he just made her up or if he's, as he claims, this woman he just saw. Either way, again, why do it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's historically very ambiguous. I mean, in truth, we basically only have uh, Petrarch's word for her. We don't know her family name, although a French scholar in 1533 named Maurice Skive uh, made a very legitimate claim that Laura was from a little town called Vaucluse and even excavated remains from a grave that gives some credence to the possibility of Laura.
0: Well, I know. And another theory is that she's this woman named Laura de Novis, who was the wife of Count Hugues of Sade. Boccaccio, the writer of the Decameron, but a really close friend of Petrarch, He's the one that said Laura was just an allegory of the crown of bay, which is the symbol of triumph, like you see from the Olympics. Uh, That's called a laurel, which is kind of close to the word Laura. Mm -hmm. So he made that case. And I find it interesting that one of, you know, Petrarch's closest friends uh, would say that have, that, that was what, how it went down because he had just won, by the way, the Laurel the year before.
1: Huh. Well, it is weird, but there's no denying uh, the strangeness of having the most self-documenting man in Western history document everything except <laughs> except the woman he's in love with uh, that no one can find and uh, who is not the mother of his children. And let me say... Uh, He was close to his children. His daughter, Francesca, and her husband were very important figures in his life. But I will say by the 1440s, historically... People have just accepted that there was a woman named Laura. Why not? (laughs) We have just kind of gone with it from there. So uh, there were a couple of places that were identified as possible birthplaces, and the myth has kind of taken on a life of its own. By uh, the 1600s, people were saying that she was a virgin, and there were people starting to make portraits of her. And the story has just gone on from there. And in, in some sense, it really doesn't matter now if it ever did. Uh, If she existed, uh, it was only as a muse. They never had a real relationship. If she didn't, she was still an idea. And it's the idea of the pains and the torments that he's expressed in the sonnets. That has taken off.
0: Well, that's certainly true. There was a guy named Thomas Wyatt who lived in the 1500s. He, like Petrarch, was well-traveled. And he had gone down to Italy and brought this sonnet back. Uh, to the British Isles, and he's credited for introducing it to to English. He not only translated many of Petrarch's sonnets, but he wrote a lot of his own, modeling his work after Petrarch's. But another fun fact about Wyatt is that he might have had his own, Laura.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, If you've heard that name, you may recognize it came from a movie or two about Henry VIII, because Wyatt was rumored to have had romantic connections with Anne Boleyn and almost got himself killed over it. But that's another mystery for another day.
0: (sighs) Anyway, the broader point is this. Petrarch had an incredibly important impact and wanted to on the way that we think in terms of science, history, and how it merges with faith. He thought deeply about the world and he wanted to convince us that he believed that God created man with a mind and it wasn't ungodly to use it in the efforts of science. We were designed to do that.
1: Well, he, he merged science and religion and that changed so much about the world. Um, his mind was uh, logical. It was powerful. And he thought very, very deeply. And because of that, uh, he had a message to get out to the world. Uh, and yet, In order to ensure that people heard him, he found it important to create a narrative to use artifice, you know, using Chris Hedge's language. And the story of Petrarch and Laura is a part of that effort. Uh, And the love narrative of Petrarch and Laura has taken on a life of its own. There have been hundreds of paintings of the untouchable Laura, and uh, Franz Liszt, the composer, composed beautiful music. You can go listen to it, and it was inspired by Petrarch's poetry for Laura.
0: Well, Petrarch, the father of humanism, original tourist, patron saint of mountaineering, the poet laureate of Rome, wrote an imaginary love story took an old Troubadour trope, stuffed it in 14 lines of rhyming iambic pentameter, and used it to propel himself, his own celebrity, and his ideas into the history of the world. I mean, almost every educated person on planet Earth knows about this diddly-doo we call the sonnet. I know it sounds like I'm grandizing his legacy, but I'm truly amazed by this. So I want to read the first Petrarchian sonnet that I ever read. Then we'll read a second one that he wrote later on. This first one is about Petrarch loving Laura and the pain of knowing that he can never have her. (laughs) The second one is after Laura is dead. So, Gary, will you read uh, the Petrarchian sonnet 104 for us? And after you do, we'll talk a little bit about the math behind The words. I know we're not going to get too much into the theme and the meaning of the poem, but there's other things I think that are more interesting when we talk about sonnets.
1: Sure. This is sonnet 104. I find no peace and bear no arms for war. I fear, I hope, I burn, yet shake with chill. I fly the heavens, huddle to earth's floor, embrace the world, yet all I grasp is nil. Love opens not, nor shuts my prison's door, nor claims me his, nor leaves me to my will. He slays me not, yet holds me evermore. Would life have me lifeless, yet bound to my ill? Eyeless I see, and tongueless I protest, and long to perish while I succor seek. Myself I hate, and would another woo, I feed on grief, I laugh with sob bracked breast, and death and life alike to me are bleak. My lady, thus, I am because of you.
0: <laughs> it's very passionate. The, I think the French word is blason. We've talked about that before. <laughs> but, uh, I love you
1: so much. You've made my life miserable.
0: Yes. Uh, but this is the way the Petrarchian sonnets work. Like all sonnets. Well, I say all sonnets. There's never all. You can do whatever you want. Uh, mo- uh, Herman Melville wrote a long one, by the way. No one's surprised by that, with 15 lines. Oh, but if you mo- can't get through Moby
1: Dick, <laughs> I can't imagine getting through his sonnet.
0: Well, he, his was 15 lines, but most sonnets are 14 lines, and they're divided into two parts. The Petrarchian ones are. The first part you call the octave, and the second part we call the sestet, so 8 and 6. And yes, I had to add that up on my fingers to make sure it, <laughs> it goes to, adds up to 14 So you have to have 14 lines, and if it's Petrarchian, it's divided into two parts, the first part and the second part, and then you have the rhyming element, and it's N rhyme, and this is where English and Italian part ways because English isn't a very good language for rhyming. Italian words rhyme far better. So for this one, what you're going to see is at the end of the line, we're going to assign it a letter. The first line here ends with the word war. So we're going to give the word war, we're going to call that A. The second line doesn't rhyme with war. So we're going to call that rhyme B. But then the third line rhymes with the first line. And so we're going to call that A. And we can call that a rhyme scheme. So the rhyme scheme for the English translation of this poem is A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. So the first eight, they all go back and mm-hmm. forth. And then you have C, D, E, C, D, E. So those those rhymes are different. I know that's a little bit confusing. And there's a couple of variations for this. This next one that we're going to read is different. The rhyme scheme is A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. So the first line and the fourth line would rhyme kind of like that. But the end is different too. C, D, C, C, D, C. Uh, so, you can see that the rules are kind of strict, but then you can break them too. It's one of those things. The main thing that you want to see, and I never see anybody writing a Petrarchian sonnet that doesn't do this, is there's a shift in meaning between the first eight lines and the second six. And they call this the volta. That means the turn in Italian. And it's a turn of thought, the turn of argument. There's a rhetorical shift. The poem is making a position, and then it's going to dramatically change in the emotions or the thoughts that the poet is trying to express. So you can think of it this way. The first part, eight lines, asks a question, and maybe the second part will give the answer. So want to read the second one?
1: Yes. Oh, lovely little bird, I watch you fly. And grieving for the past I hear you sing I see the night and the winter hastening I see the day and happy summer die If you could hear my heart in answer cry Its pain to your sad tune you'd swiftly wing Into my bosom comfort you would bring And we would weep together you and I
0: All Right those are your that's your first eight A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. Now we have the volta the shift
1: "'Tis no equality of woe, I fear. Perhaps she lives, whom you bewail from me. Have greedy death and heaven snatched, my dear, but the dark autumn evening hour sets free, the memory of many a banished year, so that let us talk of the past then tenderly.'"
0: And then we have C, D, C, D, C, D. (laughs) So A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, C, D, C, D. And, and the second one. Did I make your head spin? Yes,
1: there's <laughs> so much math. But what it, what it really uh, portrays is the fact that it's a disciplined style of writing.
0: Right. In both cases, and this is what makes Petrarchian sonnets different from the Shakespearean ones later on, they're going to follow this kind of pa- pattern, eight and six. Now, that's just the rhyming part. <laughs> Um,
1: But wait, there's more? There's
0: more. So you have the rhyme that you have to to pay attention to, but now you also have to consider the beat of the words. So we don't think of this very much in the language that we're speaking because we don't really hear it. But words have... Accents. Some have stronger, some syllables have stronger accents than others. So poets are sensitive to the beat of the language. And what you're going to hear in these sonnets is called iambic pentameter. We've talked about this when we read Ozymandias and other, a couple other poems. We even talked about it when we were doing Romeo Romeo and Juliet. The beat of the language is designed to stand out. So I don't speak Italian, I know, I'd love to, but I do speak Portuguese, which is a romance language, and in the romance languages, the beats, you're more aware of them. In Portuguese, we have accent marks that tells you what accents are supposed to be stronger than others. In English, we don't, so often we don't hear it, but let me illustrate by speaking in Portuguese, and I think when I speak in a different language, you'll hear the beat of the language more than just thinking about the words. Quando eu ensino essa ideia na minha aula my uh, school, eu sempre falo em português, porque os alunos nunca entendem o que estou falando, então eles podem ouvir com mais clareza os acentos que tem nas palavras. Now, could you hear the melody, the pa 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 when I did that Gary?
1: Um, I'm going to say no.
0: Well, uh the sounds, not the words, not the meanings, but it's the sounds that beat the rhythm that we're, that makes it pretty. That's why a lot of times we think, ooh, another language sounds prettier than my language because we can hear that beat in another language than we can.
1: And this is why we study poetry because you're showing that poetry is really a discipline.
0: Right. It yeah. is a discipline because here I am, this is the name of the unit, it's when you have an un- unaccented with an accent and then you have five of them. So that's the penta. If I say it really exaggerated, you might can hear it. I find no peace and bear no arms for war. Every other word has an accent. So you have to be careful when you're constructing the line that you don't say a word where the strong accent falls in the wrong place. You have to place That's why I say it's Sudoku. You have to place the strong beats in specific places. I hope, I'm sorry, I read it wrong. I fear, I hope, I burn, yet shake with chill. You couldn't say shake with chili because then you'd add an extra syllable and you mess it all up. You can't do that. So this is where English becomes a math game. In the same way that Scrabble is a math game. It's about words, but only deceptively because it's about numbers. Sonnets are strictly constructed to conform to specific rules. And it's the confinement of the form that make it a challenge, maybe a fun challenge, to try to write them. How do you say something so meaningful? Rhyming every other line in a specific way and beating out to where every other syllable has a specific beat. It's definitely not impossible. Anybody can do it, but you can't do it easily. There's an app for that, but that's cheating. The fun is in the mental gymnastics. And when you finish, you come out with something beautiful. Uh, One year, when I was teaching sonnet to my kids, they were grumbling and saying, you're making us write a sonnet, you should do it. And so I just did. Uh, And the other day when I was um, looking for, through my files of sonnets to do this podcast, I found my Petrarchian sonnet that I wrote. It's on our webpage if you want to see it, but I wrote it about my lost love for the stork, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) Are you interested?
1: Well, of course Mm. I'm interested. How could I, as your husband, not be interested in any love of yours? And I'm sorry (laughs) to say I didn't know you had feelings for a stork.
0: Oh, yes. It's a thing that really happened.
1: Well, uh, before we get to that fine ending, uh, we do need to circle back to Petrarch. And and I want to kind of go back to our discussion uh, about Mount Vatou, because like you were saying about the sonnet, Petrarch's influence on the way we think is so embedded into our culture that we don't often see it. Uh, By linking pagan learning into the classics and Christianity, he links the issue um, of the relationship to that to the importance of the intellect, with the will of knowing compared to loving, this is played out in so many in our Western ways of thinking. He discusses issues of morality with issues of pursuing truth and wisdom and love, and his genius really uh, left him isolated in many ways. In fact, he advocated for a scholar to actually live in solitude. Uh, and yet I can tell it really disturbs you that so much of what he said about himself wasn't really technically true.
0: Well, what I know, because when I think of him, that's what stands out. It kind of does disturb me. Why rewrite your letters that you wrote over and over again? Why create a romantic fantasy for a woman that may or may not have existed? And you didn't really know her if she did. Why climb a mountain and then write about it afterwards in a way that people will likely to Challenge the credibility if you even did it.
1: Um, yes, and I think the term you used was artifist. He created a narrative. But here is where I say it's possible to look at Peachart differently than we would look at modern day influencers like a a Jake Paul or any number of YouTubers that are influencers for fame's sake. First of all, the idea of making metaphors out of life experiences is something artists do all the time. And uh, both in the case of Mount Ventu as well as in the case of Laura, that's what he's done. He has made real things symbols of very deep ideas that were swimming around in his head. um, Here's a simple but modern example from uh, our very own Hills of Tennessee. Think about... Dolly Parton, I love her. a lot of people do uh you know the songs that she writes are about her life in part, but not all. I mean, like uh take the song, I will always love you. She wrote that. I would like to point that out, not Whitney Houston, who made it famous later on, but uh, anyway, she wrote it about a platonic relationship with her business partner, but Whitney sang it about a romantic partner, and uh, you know words are crafted by the artist, but a smart artist knows uh, the words become someone else's story immediately when they read it.
0: Yes, but you know that doesn't answer the question about why he rewrote the accounts of his life, his letters, even the ascent to Mount Vento. That's that's only what you are talking about. Is only a part of it.
1: Well, let's look at the sonnet he wrote about Laura. Uh, The first one we read was about the torture of feeling a love that you don't want to feel and know you can't have. uh, And there's pain in that. Most of us on planet Earth have had some unrequited love. (laughs) Uh, The Laura metaphor, whether she lived or didn't, really speaks For all of us, and he wanted to speak for all of us. And the second sonnet is about the loss of death, and it does the same thing. But let's look at what he's done by climbing Mount Vitu. The uh, metaphor is the mountain. Uh, What is that about? You know, it's his determination to climb the mountain, and it's an expression of humanism. Uh, The movement he's credited for really starting, he climbed it for the sake of knowing. Hmm, how nice and what a nice thing to aspire to in life, really, for all of us. We can climb for the sake of knowing. He found happiness there. It's um, a physical and spiritual intellectual experience. Petrarch wanted to not just be the man who knows, but the happy man who is skilled enough and daring enough to live purposefully, understanding the pains and joys of life, but finding enough beauty to sustain the hits.
0: And the mountain metaphor communicates that, I guess. It's the art of artifice. Crafting the narrative gives longevity to the emotions, to the ideas that he had inside. That's really a brilliant thing to try to do, but it's also a very complicated thing. And he is, if nothing, a complicated man. And I want to end by an ironic complication about his end of life because there's yet another mystery. So in 1981, this professor, and I'm not going to pronounce his name right, I'm sorry, by the name of Terrabile Marin. So in honor of Petrarch's 700th birthday, they assembled a group to go over and open Petrarch's tomb. The idea was to excavate his body so that through modern technology, we could recreate what he actually looked like. But here's the crazy part. When they dug up the body, it was definitely his body, but his head had been decapitated, and there was a different head in the grave. <laughs> sounds
1: like a Poe story, Edgar <laughs> Allen.
0: I know. And what's even stranger, the head that they found is of a woman. Hmm. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? It's not possible that Petrarch could have possibly created that piece of artifice.
1: Obviously, they weren't <laughs> anticipating DNA <laughs> testing at that point. Hmm. Uh, well anyway you never know uh maybe it was laura (laughs) you could never know
0: maybe so but anyway i guess that'll end it for today and it ends our discussion of the renaissance
1: indeed it does we'll be moving on thanks for being with us um We'd like to ask you to uh, text an episode to a friend to check us out on our How to Love Lit podcast page, to check us out on Facebook and on Instagram. Become our friend. Keep up with what's going on. And we also love hearing from you all. Until next time.
0: Peace out.